JCOR is proud to give you Rabbi Abba Wagensberg. Good evening, everybody. I'll try that again. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Amen. Thank you. Much better. This week's portion, we have just matos. Usually matos is connected to mas a. But this week, we just have matos. There are a variety of topics found in our little parsha, little portion called matos. The first two topics deal with the following. Number one is a whole subject matter of vows. The second topic deals with a war that was waged by the Jewish people against the Midianites. I think there could be a very deep connection between these two juxtaposed topics as our parsha begins. In the portion of vows, in the subject matter of vows, it says there, Lo yachel devaro, a person is not allowed to profane his word. When a person pledges to do something, a person gives their word, then we are told to basically say what we mean, mean what we say. And once we commit ourselves to do something, then with honesty and with integrity, we are supposed to carry out that which we have pledged to do. And understanding, hopefully, please God, in the next uh, three quarters of an hour, what it means to be an honest person, to do what we say, and to do things with integrity. I'd like to share with you a dimension that for me was mind-blowing, also something that touched my heart and my soul. I want to share that with you this evening. And uh, it basically begins with a story. This story goes back about 200 years ago in the town of Mejibaj. You go back 200 years in Mejibaj, we're talking about the town of none other than the Baal Shem Tov himself, the, the father of the Hasidic movement. And in that town there was a great Talmud Chacham, a great Torah scholar. And he goes unnamed in the story that I read. And I guess you'll figure out why as we continue telling the story. This great Talmudic scholar wanted simply absolutely nothing to do with the Baal Shem Tov. Because this great Torah scholar was from the other camp, known at the time as the Misnagdim, the opponents, who actually had sharp criticisms against the Baal Shem Tov and against the entire Hasidic movement. This fellow never went to the Baal Shem Tov to seek his advice. Need I even say that? Never went to the Baal Shem Tov to get his blessings. He wouldn't touch the Baal Shem Tov with a ten-foot pole. Like He stayed very, very far away. Until the following incident happened. One evening, this great Talmudic scholar was in his home. It's late in the evening. It's maybe about midnight, getting closer to one o'clock in the morning. And what was the great Talmudic scholar doing? He was involved in the study of Talmud. He gets to a certain passage and he can't understand what the passage means. So the scholar looks at one of the commentaries to the side of this passage known as Tosfos, the Tosafists. 
He looks into the words of the Tosafists, and for the life of him, he simply cannot make out heads or tails what the Tosafists are talking about. And he's trying as hard as he can, with all his vast knowledge, his all this great Talmudic knowledge, he simply cannot unbreak the code as to what the Tosafists were talking about. And so the hours are ticking. It's now 1.30, quarter to 2, 2 o'clock, and he's very tired. And it's like, you know, it's very head-pounding against the text, and he's trying to... And every time he comes up with some type of maybe possible solution, it gets shot down, doesn't seem to fit, it doesn't make sense, and because the hour is late, and because he's trying so hard, he, he really just collapses in sheer exhaustion. He collapses on his Talmud. And he falls asleep. And in his sleep he has a dream. And in his dream, angels on both sides of him grab him by the arms and they start to fly him higher and higher. He feels himself traveling through space and time at a very quick pace at a very high speed. And as he's going higher and higher, the light that he experiences is becoming brighter and brighter. So bright, he finds it hard to keep his eyes open. So he closes his eyes. But as they continue going higher, and the light becomes much more intense, even closing his eyes doesn't help. So he takes the palms of his hands, and he places them, cups them over his eyes. But after a while, even that doesn't help. And the light penetrates his palms and his eyelids, and it gets to his eyes until he feels he can almost not bear it any longer, until the angels escort him to the highest place they've got up there. The highest and the holiest chamber they've got up there in the heavens. When they enter this chamber, he hears one of the angels whisper into his ears, It's okay. In this place, you can take your hands off of your eyes. You can open your eyelids. In this place, the light is not going to hurt. Ironically, because it's the highest and the holiest of the places. And the angel says, here it's fine. You can open your eyes. So he trusts the angel. And he takes his hands, cups off of his eyes, opens his eyelids, and sure enough, he can see very comfortably what's going on. And what does he see? He sees a long table with tzaddikim, righteous people, sitting around that table, all listening thirstily to the teaching of the grand scholar at the head of the table. Want to take a guess? Maybe who that person was or is that's teaching all the great what? You got it, Ruben. <laughs> the Baal Shem Tov himself is sitting at the head of this table with all these righteous people over the generations. And they're sitting there just listening spellbound at every word. And as soon as this fellow, this Talmudic scholar who's having the dream, as soon as he sees the Baal Shem Tov who's conducting this discourse of whatever he's teaching, and the Baal Shem Tov picked up his eyes, and he sees this fellow, the Baal Shem Tov stopped in the middle of a sentence, whatever he was saying. He looks at this fellow and has a smile on his face. 
and says, Oh, Reb Yid, Rabbi Jew, welcome, Baruch Abba, welcome to our place. So now all the righteous people, they all turn around to see who this is, and so he's kind of taken by surprise. He's all flustered. He doesn't know what to say, what to respond. And before he has a chance to say anything, the Baal Shem Tov continues to say to this man, but tell me something, Reb Yid. Tell me something, Rabbi Jew. Why do the words of that Tosafos, why do the words of the Tosafists bother you so much? Don't you see that the explanation is kach v'kach, is such and such. And the Baal Shem Tov proceeds to explain and to unravel the mystery behind the words of this Tosfos, of these Tosafists. And after the men heard the interpretation, it kind of made sense. The Baal Shem Tov, without missing a beat, goes right back. Mid-sentence continues teaching the other righteous. They all kind of turn their heads to the Baal Shem Tov, at which moment... The angels say to this man, Okay, now it's time to leave, it's time to go back. Excuse me. L'chaim, 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 l'chaim. So they take this man out of the holiest of places up there that they've got in heaven, and they begin to fly him back down the light once again. He closes his eyes and cups it over his, until he feels himself falling very rapidly from one rakia, from one firmament, from one sky to the goes down, 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 boom, 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 until he feels his soul hits his body again and he wakes up in the middle of the night. Who knows, 3 o'clock in the morning, 3.30 in the morning. He wakes up and he's there in his home and he sees the Talmud opened in front of him. And he remembers his dream vividly. So he says, wait a second, I remember what the Baal Shem Tov told me. So he looks in the text of the Tosafists to see when he's awake if it makes sense. Sometimes we dream things, it seems to make sense when we're sleeping. But when we wake up, he wants to see, does this really make sense? He looks into the words of the Tosafists and lo and behold, it fits like a glove. Now the Baal Shem Tov has this great Torah scholar's curiosity has been piqued. Oh, so the Baal Shem Tov, he's wondering, you know what he says to himself? He says, I think this weekend I'd like to check out and see what this Baal Shem Tov is anyway. Because I don't know, it's kind of strange, the dream and so on. He made up his mind that later this week I'm going to see, I'm going to sneak in on the, on the Sabbath day or one of the meals. I'm going to kind of sneak in and see and observe from a distance to see who is this character anyway. So the days go by, and as the days go by, this man is still how many people dream, how many people remember their dreams, and how many people dream about Torah, how many people remember the teachings in their dreams. So after a couple of days, this man starts to think to himself, well, well, he says, he reasons, if I already saw and or learned Torah in my dream, that must be a good sign. There's a whole discussion about dreams in the ninth chapter of a, tra- of a tractate called the Brachos, about blessings. So if I dreamt about Torah, must be a pretty good sign. Not that bad right there. But you know what? Maybe that the Baal Shem Tov was the one that taught me that peace in my dream. You know what he began to think? The, Gemara, the Talmud says a whole bunch of different rules about dreams. I want to share with you one of the rules of thumbs that the Talmud sets forth about dreams. The Gemara says, the Talmud says, Ein chalom b'li devarim 
There is no such thing as a dream without some shtuyot, some ridiculousness in the dream. So he says that I dreamt Torah must be pats himself on the back. I must be doing all right, right there. That the Baal Shem Tov was the one that taught, that must have been the Dvarim Betelim, that must have been the shtus, that must have been the ridiculousness. And he starts, but he's still, he's not sure. He's not, so he says to himself this weekend, I'm going to see once and for all who this Baal Shem Tov really is. You have to realize, this man lived in the town. This man had in his heart animosity towards the Baal Shem Tov at first. Whereas the Baal Shem Tov was heard by his chassi, by his followers, the Baal Shem Tov would often say, such and such a Jew, ah, what a neshama, what a soul he has. If he'd only open up to the teachings that I have to share with him, he could really go places. Ironically, two Jews living in the same shtetl, the same town. One Jew can't stand the other, and the other Jew, the Baal was loving the guy to pieces. In any case, it comes that Shabbos, and this great scholar decided, I think it'll be Shalashudas, the third meal. I'm going to sneak in, in the back, and see for myself who is this Baal Shem Tov personality or character anyway. What does he do? So after the afternoon service, this man goes home and has his own Shalashudas first. His own. Why? I'm not going to eat by the Baal Shem Tov. Who can trust, who can trust the man's kashras? That's what, he, that's what he was still thinking. He's still thinking. Who knows? He goes home. He eats his own meal very quickly. He sings a song or two very quickly. He shares maybe a word of Torah very quickly. And he benches the grace after very quickly. And then he makes his way across Mejibaj to the home of the Baal Shem Tov. Already two blocks away, you can hear the singing coming. The Baal Shem Tov is fearing Tish, the Rebbe, sitting at a table. And all the Hasidim are packed into this home, it's wall to wall, the Baal Shem Tov is sitting, Hasidim are sitting around, and they're standing, and they're standing on chairs as the rows go back, and they're singing, and they're watching the Baal Shem Tov, every nuance and every word, and from time to time, interjected singing, and then words of Torah, back to the singing, some more food, back and forth. So this man, this great Talmudic scholar, thought to himself, I'm going to sneak in the back of the room, sneak in the back. And the Baal Shem Tov can't even see the door from where he's sitting. So many rows of people and standing on chairs. I'll sneak in, I'll put my hat forward, cover half of my face, and I'll sit, I'll find the corner, I'll just listen, I'll just watch, I'll just observe. And that's what he does. Excuse me, L'chaim. L'chaim, L'chaim, Thank you, thank you. So the Baal Shem Tov was in the middle of delivering whatever teaching it was. And this man walks in from the back and he expected to make his way to some corner and make himself invisible. But as soon as the man entered the room, the Baal Shem Tov stopped mid-sentence from whatever it was he was discussing. He looks towards the door. He can't see the door because there is a wall of people. But he looks towards the door and says, Oh! He smiled, Rebid, Shalom Aleichem, Rabbi Jew, welcome to my home, the Hasidim, who is the Baal Shem Tov talking to? So suddenly, of course, when the Rebbe is looking in a direction, what happens? It's yeah. called 
Kriyas Yamsof. <laughs> and the people part. And there's a beeline from the Baal Shem Tov to this fellow. And everybody turned to see who it was. And the Baal Shem Tov is smiling. Oh, welcome to my home. And this fellow, he feels like caught off guard. He feels somewhat embarrassed. He's flustered. He can't even catch what he's going to say before he has a chance to say anything. The Baal Shem Tov says to him, Tell me something, Rabbi. Tell me, Rabbi Jew. The words of the Tosafists that I explained to you a couple of nights ago. Did you look into the text and see if it fit the words as I explained it to you? Let me just point out that well, when this man, this man heard the Baal Shem Tov say the words, I mean his jaw hit the floor. What does that mean? The Baal Shem Tov knows what I'm dreaming? The Baal Shem Tov comes to me in my dreams? How is that even possible? Who is this man and what is he doing? And how does he know what I'm learning privately? All these questions are racing through. I just want to point out the Baal Shem Tov did not say to this man the words of the Tosafists that I explained to you a couple of nights ago in your dream. The Baal Shem Tov left that part out. After all, no need to show off. He wants to maintain some level of humility, but to make an impression, to make a point, he says to the man. As far as everyone else is concerned, they may have been talking after the evening service, walking home in the street, they were discussing. The Baal Shem Tov tell me the words. Did they, did they fit? Did they fit as I explained it to you? And the man was so blown away, so impressed by the Baal Shem Tov, that moment he made a 180 degree turn and became not just, not just a chassid, a follower of the Baal Shem Tov, he became one of the biggest followers of the Baal Shem Again, I don't know his name. The name wasn't mentioned in the story that I read. And this, was, this is a story introducing what I'd like to share with you this evening about our portion that starts with vows and then goes on to discuss a war against the Midianites. What does it have to do with this story? Well, friends, I want to suggest perhaps that I think, I think maybe I stumbled upon the Tosafists that this story actually revolves around. Because in the story it doesn't say which page of which of which Talmudic you know folio it doesn't say. It just so I think it's like I can't say accidentally everything is Minashamayim, but I think Minashamayim, I'm not sure. It's not Torah from Sinai here, it's just my little suggestion. And I want to share with you what the Tosafists say. And here we kind of get to the teaching of this Baal Shem Tov. I see the time. Let's see, it's like almost about a quarter to, quarter to eight. It leaves me very little time here. I'll try and do this quicker than slower. L'chaim. We can dive a minute and then come back. Oh. Men can be like an inter- inter- intermission. Okay, if that works. Okay. No, it's not going to work. Want to make a minion down here? Yeah. Yes. Yes. What's the latest we can dive in, though? I don't even know the, t- the times here. Okay, thank you. Before 8.30. Okay, alright. So we can do a minion right here, you're saying? Yeah? Okay. A Marv also, that'd be nice. I like that. Possible. 8.29 Shkia. Okay, alright. So. so you let me know as you decide what to do. As we continue, let me know. Just give me the signals when I, when I should stop and so on and what we should do when it comes to Mincha time, okay? Alright, so... The Tosafists are found, I think, 
in a tractate called Shabbos. If you'd like to know the page, I'll tell you the page number, you can look for yourselves afterwards, on 75A. Towards the bottom of the page, I'll tell you, the Talmud asks a question. And here comes the Talmudic question. Shochet mishum mai chayev. Why is a slaughterer liable for slaughtering an animal on the Sabbath day? There are two opinions. Rav is the first opinion. Rav says, Mishum Tsoveya. He says, because of coloring. That's what Rav says, coloring. Shmuel disagrees and says, no, Mishum Natilas Neshama. The reason why he's liable is for taking the soul out of a living creature. Let's ask ourselves question number one. You see, Shmuel, I kind of understand. That Shmuel said to Shecht, to slaughter an animal on the Sabbath day, he kind of defined and described the nature of this malacha, this creative activity. He basically, by, by doing the slicing, took the soul out of a living creature. But Rav, Rav says coloring. Coloring? What coloring? I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, if you've ever seen or even imagined what it must be like to be in a slaughterhouse of animals. So blood goes spritzing everywhere. So maybe the coloring is when the shochet wears that, that long white apron. He's coloring the apron. Or maybe it spritzes on the wall. Or maybe on the floor. Maybe on the skin of the animal. That's the coloring. That's the coloring? Let me ask you all a question. I have a question on this. That's coloring? Imagine it's Shabbos afternoon. You're expecting guests. It's 11 o'clock in the or Shabbos in the morning. 11 o'clock in the morning, and you're having guests coming in about I don't know a half hour's time for the Shabbos, you know, the day meal. So you're in the kitchen, and uh, before everybody comes home, you're quickly putting together last touches on your salad or something. So you take a cucumber and you take a knife and you start chopping and you make this little you know dice the cucumber a little slice a little large a little thicker than usual. And let's say God forbid, as you're rushing, God forbid you slice a little nick. The tip of your finger, God forbid, right? Little finger, and so you drop the knife. Oh, I'm bleeding! So you look around, and the closest thing to you is a white towel hanging over a chair. You grab the towel, vump, onto the finger, and you apply pressure for five minutes to stop the bleeding, and then you slowly peel the towel off. Oh, thank God, I'm not bleeding. You look at the white towel, and there's a red stain on the towel. Did you just transgress coloring on the Sabbath day? Of course not. It's not a case of life and death. No one's going to die from a cut on the tip of a finger. Most people, I should say, right? So why why is that not called coloring? Because the nature of Meleches Tzoveya, the nature of coloring is when you improve on what you color. You take a canvas that you bought somewhere for you know, $9.99 and you put the beautiful inks and whatever and you make it worth $500. That's called coloring, improving. Here, did I improve on the towel? I soiled the towel. I made the towel filthy. Would I ever think of giving that towel to my guests? Here, you washed your hands before. Here, use this. It's disgusting. So it's not the same direction as Tovea is coloring. So if that's the case, how can Rav say that when a slaughterer slaughters an animal on the Sabbath day, he's guilty, he's liable for color. What coloring? He didn't color anything. It's soiled, he got everything filthy. This is question number one. 
So thank God for the Tosafists. Right here. Now we get to Tosafists. The to- at, the, at the bottom of the page, it's a very short Tosafists. Very short. And I'll share with you the words that he says. Say the Tosafists. You want to know why? Rav said that if a person slaughters an animal on Shabbos, he's guilty, liable for, for coloring. Says Tosafists, It's because we're talking about the slaughterer outside. End of Tosafists. You got that? No. No? If you haven't gotten that, you've been paying attention. Because if a person says, oh, I understand, that means we have not been paying attention. If a person says, what? What? Because we're talking about the slaughter outside. He's outside. Therefore, I now understand why it's called coloring. What? It makes a difference outside, inside, the kitchen, the closet, the car. Who cares? How is it called? This is the Tosfos, I think, that this great Torah scholar, no matter what he thought of, couldn't break the code. This is question number two. Like, you know, we turn to the commentaries, like, thank God for the commentaries that make things easier. Now I'm even more confused than I was before. Question number two. What do, what do the Tosafists mean when they say, talking about the slaughterer outside? L'chaim, l'chaim, thank you. Drinking together with me, thank you. L'chaim. What's this? <laughs> So hold on. Very nice thoughts, and hold on to what, what, what you think. Well, let's see as we proceed. Hold on. Now let's turn temporarily to a completely different passage: the Talmud and Tractate Sukkah. This is a prophetic piece of Talmud because it tells us what's going to happen at the end of days. There are lots of things that are going to happen, and this is one aspect. Says the Talmud, at the end of days, God is going to take the Yetzirah, then an angel called the evil inclination, and God is going to slaughter that angel in front of the righteous and in front of the wicked. And when these two camps, the righteous and the wicked, see the, this uh, evil inclination, they're both going to begin to cry. But they cry for different reasons. The righteous cry because to them, the evil inclination is like a huge mountain. And why does that evoke tears of joy? Because the Talmud base, the, 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 the understanding of the Talmud is that as a person grows spiritually, so the evil inclination has to also grow to make it an even battle. So these righteous people, if they see that their own evil inclination is so, it's huge, like Mount Everest, it's a reflection of their spirituality. They cry tears of joy and say, how are we able to overcome that mountain? The wicked also cry tears, but very bitter tears. Because to the wicked, the evil inclination is going to appear like the like a hair's breadth. Just one hair. That's it. What's one hair? It's a nothing. You blow it, it blows away. You break it in half, you tear it in half. It's a nothing. And that's a reflection. These wicked people, they thought they were so tough, muscle-bound, barely chest, motorcycle gang, and they're weaklings. They cry. They were nothing. So they cry. And God will then proceed to shecht, to slaughter this angel at the end of days. You know, the commentaries grapple with this Talmudic passage. They want to know, well, why is God 
going to shecht, to slaughter this angel at the end of days. I know what you're thinking, maybe. One possibility could be, well, after all, this angel caused so many people to sin. And since he caused so much evil in the world, so he's going to get punished. Wait a second. I can't buy that as a reason, because who appointed this angel to tempt people? It was God Himself. At the time of creation, Hashem pointed to that angel said, Yo, come over here. And said, I want you to tempt people. Make it difficult. And this angel is merely carrying out the divine will. I'm not sure about the other angels out there, but this guy's doing his job. Just look around. People drop in like flies. He's mamish. So you want to you punish him? That's not fair. It's not right. He's doing what Hashem told him to do. Wasn't his, he didn't even volunteer. He was commanded by God to do a job. So you're going to kill him? Destroy him? I think he should be promoted. What else are you going to say? I know why you'll say he's destroyed. Because there will be no need for the angel any longer. At the end of days or the messianic era, maybe there's no, no longer will there be this inclination or tendency or proclivity to engage in negativity. Who needs the angel? But still, is that right? Here's an angel, he was told to do something, he listens, he follows, he follows what Hashem wants, and then what? When he's no longer needed, what do you do with him? You dispose of him? I have a suggestion. Maybe promote him. <laughs> Give him some other job, a high hierarchy, or whatever the case is. Let him bask next to God for all eternity for doing the will of God. So the commentaries grapple, and this is question number three. Why is God going to destroy the, this angel called the Yitzhahara, the evil inclination at the end of days? L'chaim, l'chaim. It is here the Baal Shem Tov has a novel approach. This Baal Shem Tov can be found in there's a, uh, a, a book, a sefer out there called the Baal Shem Tov on the Torah. And if you look in towards the end of Parshas Bereshis, take a look at the end of the portion of Bereshis, Genesis. He says this piece. And what I'm going to share with you right now, I understand, will be at least a bit controversial. I think somewhere during what I'm going to share with you, there will be those people here that are going to say, Wait a minute, how can you say that? And you're attacking me. And so hold on, I will hopefully actually verbalize. The, the question you are about to have in attacking the Baal Shem Tov and hopefully I will defend the Baal Shem Tov but let's first hear what the man says the Baal Shem Tov says to answer this third question first you want to know why God will destroy this evil inclination at the end of days it is because yes it's true Hashem himself appointed this angel to tempt us but says the Baal Shem Tov what were the specific instructions of God Let's get down to details. At the beginning of time, God said, You, Mr. Angel, come over here. I want you to tempt people to do the wrong thing. But what were the specific instructions? It goes like this. God said to the angel, I want you to go to people and entice them to do something wrong in an area that they recognize they should not be doing. <laughs> try to make them sin in areas that they know on their own that it's not really right I shouldn't be doing this like for example like my Sahara comes to me and he whispers in my ear hey Abale come come let's go 
Let's go. Let's go do it. Come. Let's go. It'll be fun. It'll feel good. Come on. Nobody's watching. Come on. Now, I know I shouldn't go there. I know I shouldn't look at this. I know I shouldn't do this. I know I shouldn't say this. I know I shouldn't listen to this. I know. But he makes it so enticing, so luring. So, so, so I do it. That's, says the Baal what Hashem, that's how Hashem appointed the Yetzirahara. So the Vashem Tov had the Yetzirahara done his job and just tempt us in this manner. You're absolutely right. He would never have been destroyed. He would be promoted at the end of days. However, says the Vashem Tov, here comes his novel idea. At the Yetzirahara, this angel, Hosef Midilei, he went above and beyond the call of duty. And the Yetzirahara doesn't only tempt us in the way we just described, but the Yetzirahara also causes us to do sins with a different method. What's his methodology? He tries to disguise an Avera. He tries to disguise a sin and make it appear to us like it's a mitzvah, like it's a positive thing. And so we start to hear people say the following words. What do you mean, what I said at the shul board meeting? It was a mitzvah what I said. Ah, it was a mitzvah what I said. And it was for the principle of the matter that I did what I had to do. And this is called self-righteousness. We start to justify. And we start to rationalize. My wife and I often talk about this. We call this the old JNR. What's JNR? JNR is justification and rationalization. And that means to say that everything's a mitzvah. I do no evil. Everything I can explain away why I'm doing just what it is that God wants me to do. Says the Baal Tov, what's the diff between the first way and the second way of this angel tempting us? Well, the difference is like this. In the first way, when I recognize that I should not have done that. I know it's wrong. He makes it so luring, enticing. So let's just say I buckle under. I just, I, can't, I feel like I can't control myself and I do it. So how do you feel after you do it? Oh, I can't believe I did that again. I said it again. I looked again. I listened again. I spoke again. Oh, we feel so dirty. We feel so filthy. And we have remorse. That's pretty remorse. That's give out. Amazing. And then I say, you know what? I'm never going to do that again. That's beautiful. I'm never going to do it again. I feel bad about the past. I'm accepting upon the future. And I say, God, please forgive me for doing this. Just be patient with me. A person can come to do teshuva. A person can repent. L'chaim. Says the Barshentov. But in the second way, this novel approach of the Yetzirahara that he invented, that he created, where he kind of disguises a sin and makes it appear as a positive deed, says the Baal Shem Tov, on mitzvahs, we don't do tshuva. A tshuva? <laughs> I didn't do anything wrong. It was a mitzvah. We don't. And a person could actually wind up living a lie their entire lives, God forbid, thinking, convincing themselves that everything is a mitzvah. I kind of hear my Rebbe's words echoing in my ears of Rav Chaim Pinchas, Pinchas Scheinberg, Zatzal. He used to say, yeah, alts is a mitzvah. Everything's a mitzvah. People convince themselves, 
everything's a mitzvah. We kind of have ways at justifying anything that we actually want to do without really being honest and truthful. People don't know if they're coming or going. And that's a very tricky business, a very slippery slope to get involved in, which is why the Baal Shem Tov says, God is going to destroy the Yetzirah at the end of days. Why? Because of that I never asked you to do. I appointed you to tempt them in the first of the two ways. When they recognize that it's wrong, let them do tshuva, let them repent. But you, creatively, went above and beyond to the call of duty. And so, and the people don't even realize that they're living a lie, living sin. That's something I never asked, I never instructed. And because you took the liberty at inventing this new methodology, what goes around comes around, I'm going to demolish you, I will annihilate you at the end of days. That's the Baal Shem Tov's novel approach in answering the third question, this Talmud passage in Sukkah, why the Yitzhak gets destroyed at the end of days. Now what's the, uh, just parenthetically, what I think some people here might be thinking of, hey wait a second, just hold on one second, Wagensburg. How can you say the Baal Shem Tov says that the Yitzhak on his own added when above and beyond the call of duty here comes the attack that I often get on this piece of the Baal Shem Tov and that is wait a second the Eight Sahara is an angel and angels don't have free will was that was that something that maybe some people were thinking possibly in the audience and if, they, if they're just robots if that's, if that's the case then how can this angel the Eight Sahara so go above and beyond and choose to, to, to do more than God asked him to. Where did he get that from? So here's the point I'd like to defend the Baal Shem Tov by suggesting, and I have many proofs to this idea, that I think it's a common mistake that people think that angels don't have free will. I'd like to purport, Be'ezus Hashem, to support the Baal Shem Tov that angels do have free will. And now I'd like to prove this side of the coin, that they do have free will. How is that? But their free will is much different than, 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 for the most part, than our free Let me explain it to you like this. Imagine. Imagine there is a bonfire right over here. Right here, bonfire. And we're celebrating Lag Ba'omer. And we're strumming the guitar. Bar Yochai. We're having a great time, right? Bonfire. Let me ask you a question. Could you take your arm and stick it into the fire hold it there for five minutes and pull it out? Yes or no? No. No? You could. You could. A person really, if they wanted to, they really could. They can choose to do so. But you know what? We basically won't. Want to know why? Because we realize the repercussions. We realize if I put my hand into the fire, it's going to get burned off. This is an example of angels when they are in heaven. Angels have free will when they're in heaven. And they see the light, or shall I say, they see the fire. They see the ramifications of their actions. So they just don't bother disobeying divine commands. Because, of course they could, but angels aren't idiots. Why would we? Why would we? See, if I do that, I I get besinged, I get burned. That's when the angels are up there in heaven and things are clear. However, when angels come down here on earth... Things change on earth, don't they? Everybody in this room has been blessed with a beautiful neshama, a beautiful soul. 
And that soul comes from the highest of places, maybe even higher than the angels, carved right out from under the God's throne of glory. And that soul had such a clarity about God's presence. Once it comes to this world, is God obvious? Is God clear? Well, I'm not so sure. I don't know. Some people walk outside and there was Sunday morning. They walk outside of the front door in their bathrobe and slippers. They want to get the Sunday morning paper. Look around and there are trees and birds and clouds and sun. Some people look at that and they say, how did that come to be, all that stuff? Oh, it just happened. Oh, it just kind of happened all by itself. Some people don't see God in the trees. Other people look at the tree and say, wow, a tree? Photosynthesis? Insects? And the whole way in gravity, what's going on? Wow! How did that all happen by itself? So some people can see God behind. It depends. In this world, I wouldn't say it's clear. It kind of depends. L'chaim. Ah. So when angels... Thank you, thank you. When angels come down to this world, they kind of suffer the same difficulties that we suffer being in this world. When angels come down here, they might not see the fire as clearly as they saw it up in the heavens. That's why we find so many cases in the Bible itself where angels make mistakes. They chose to make mistakes. Angels are not perfect. Only God is perfect. Anything other than God is imperfect. For example, at creation, God commanded the trees, the fruit trees, that the bark should taste like the fruit and be edible. Who was God talking to? The trees? Many commentaries say God was addressing the angel appointed over the trees. So what does the Bible say? In the Torah it says that the angel in charge of the trees had the fruit trees grow, but only the fruits are edible, not the bark. A direct disobeying of a divine command. Why? The Maharshal says, you know why the angel disobeyed? Because the angel reasoned, if the trees are edible, imagine you take a walk with your friend down the street, tree, all trees are edible, what's to stop you from, as you're walking down the street, come to take a bite out of a tree? And if enough people take enough bites out of trees, there won't be any trees left. If there are no trees and no fruits and no seeds, then the insects which live off of those trees will die. And the animals that eat those insects will die. And the people that need... And everybody's going to die. So the shame shamahim for the sake of heaven, this angel went green. Save the planet. Save earth. Right? And so the angel said, I want to preserve the trees. Slow down. Slow down. So then why was the angel punished? You know, God cursed, God cursed the earth and then thereby cursed the angel appointed over the earth. Why did God punish? Because you know why? Because God said, don't tell me what you're thinking, do as I say. I'm God. I know of the problem. I can handle it. I'm God. Go ahead, do what I say, and don't worry. If I tell you to do it, don't tell me what you think. Listen to what I'm telling you. So we find an angel down here, on the earth, in the trees, by the trees, disobeyed. Chose to disobey a direct divine command. Later on, by the, right before the portion of Noah, there's a huge Yalkut Shemoni there. There were two angels that passed by God. I'll just kind of share with you briefly what the measure says. They passed by God. God was looking down at mankind, immorality, rampant, and God felt very bad. Whatever that means. God felt remorse. He felt regret. The verse says it's a hard verse to read, but I'm just, I'm just translating the words. He felt bad. The angels, and we know their names, Shamchazai and Uziel, they passed by, they say, Hashem, what do you feel so bad? I look at the people down there. They said, you know what? 
of God? If they if they give you such sorrow, such such, such you know heartache, destroy them. And God looked at them and said, "Do y'all think that if you'd be down there, you'd fear any better? You think you'd do better than?" They said, "Yes, we think we can." I said, "Okay, fine. I'll put you to the test." He went, "Bam!" and beamed them down to earth. And these angels woke up with bodies. These, like we have a soul in a body? Well, there was an angel in a body. And so they, whoa, blink, blink. Touch, touch, whoa. They got, they got, and they looked around and they saw the daughters of mankind. And they were attractive. And so the verse, these are the Nephilim, by the way, those that fell. They went running after the women and outdid mankind in immorality. God said, don't you be quick to pass critical judgments against until you walk a thousand miles in their moccasins, which, by the way, comes from the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. Until you're in their shoes, don't you be so critical. So we find that the angels, they came down to earth. And what did they do? They really messed up, these angels. Down on earth, it's not so clear anymore, is it? Or the angels that came to Avraham Avinu's house. Thank you. L'chaim, 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 They come to Avraham's house. And Avraham serves them. Meat, separate. Dairy, separate. They bring it together, the angels. And they eat, they ate. Milk and meat together. You know what the Midrash says? A shokher tov? On Tehillim, on Psalms. When Moshe went on high to receive the Torah, so it says that God changed Moshe's face to appear like Avraham. And Hashem told the angels, there was a whole battle, who gets the Torah? Do we get the Torah? Do they keep the Torah? So God said to the angels, when you angels went to this man's house, look like Avraham now, you transgressed eating meat and milk together. Meat and milk together. Every Jewish child knows. He comes from, from Cheder, from the, the Talmud Torah, from his school the first day. And if his mother puts a slab of meat and a slab of cheese on the same plate, he says, Mama, we just learned today. It says, Lo, Sebashel, Gedi, Vimo, not to mix it three times in the Torah. You can't. And here, children, Jewish children know this. And you went ahead and you mixed it together. You know why some of the commentaries say there's a custom on ha- having dairy on Shavuos? You want to know why there's a custom? Because we won the Torah, according to this Midrash, because of this argument. The angels had nothing to say. Here, you angels maintain, keep the Torah up in the heavens. We will be the true guardians of the Torah. And God says, baloney, with some cheese. Right? Baloney. You know guardians of the Torah. Because you blew it yourselves. So they lost, and we got the Torah. That's why we have a dairy meal. And a meat, or some have both in the same meal. The first course dairy, second course meat, and we make the proper separations to show because of this mitzvah, because of this, we deserved the Torah. We won the Torah. It's one of the reasons for having dairy on Shavuos. But the angels, come on, what's going on? Milk and meat. And at that time, Torah was Bashamayim. So they were commanded in this. So you see, I don't know, they were maybe, it looked pretty good right there. A little cheeseburger right there looked pretty good. So you see, angels make mistakes right, left, and center. Angels are not perfect. They can choose. And when they're on this world, they do choose. And the Eight Sahara, where's the Eight Sahara, by the way? Right here. It's right in the heart. And he's in this world. And because the Eight Sahara, the evil, is in this world, he can choose. And he chooses. And according to the Bashem Tov, he chose to go above and beyond the call of duty. And that's why... That's why God said, I will destroy him at the end of days. Where are we holding here? A few more minutes? You tell me. A few more minutes? Okay, L'chaim everybody, L'chaim. Are we going to bench before or after me? You can bench before if you watch.
Ruben? Okay. Now we go back to this Talmudic passage in Tractate Shabbos. The Gemara asks the question, Shalchet Mishum Maichayev. Why is a slaughter reliable for shefting on Shabbos? Rav says because of coloring. Shmuel says because of taking the living life source out of a, out of a living creature. So we asked for question number one. Rav, what do you mean? Coloring? What's coloring? Blood spritzing is, is, is soiling, not coloring. What, what does that mean? So then the Tosafists came to explain Rav. Oh, you know why? We're talking about the shochet outside. What did that have to do with it? Outside. What does that have to do? How does it answer the question? Says the Balshemtov, the Balshemtov, incredible interpretation of this Tosafos. The Balshemtov says that when the Tosafists say shochet what does da'alma really mean? Da'alma means it's an Aramaic word which means the world. We're talking about the slaughterer of the world. Who is the slaughterer of the world? It's something called the Malachamavis, the angel of death. This angel is appointed to take, for most people, this angel takes their lives away. This angel, is the, the, the Talmud says in Baba Basra, this angel, the angel of death, is the same angel as the Satan. It's the same angel as the Yetzirah, which is the evil inclination. And that's why he has three names. You want to know why? Because he has three. He, this is the way he operates. You see, first he comes to us with a t-shirt on that says Yetzirah, evil inclination. So on, with that t-shirt on, what does he do? He comes down, he puts his arm over Abba Wagensburg, he says, hey, Come on, let's go. Let's do it. Let's have a good time. Come on. So I think he's my friend and my buddy. So I listen and I do it. Then what does he do? He rips off that outer t-shirt. And what's underneath? Satan. Now he's at a second job. What does a Satan do? He satanizes. I think I created that word. What does satanize mean? He becomes a prosecuting attorney. He runs up to God and says, God... Let's not use me in this case. Let's use Ruvain over there. Invisible Ruvain. You'll see why in a minute. Ruvain. Let's use Ruvain. Ruvain sinned. Now the Satan goes up to God and says, I think you should take Ruvain's life away. God says, oh, slow down. Why should I take Ruvain's life away? He says, because he just sinned. So, so, so he sinned? You take a life? So the Satan says to God, well, it's kind of... Tell me, God. Tell me. He's an attorney. So he, he builds his case. Presents his case. He says, what happens, Master of the Universe... If um, a mother comes home and she buys a baseball bat for her eight-year-old boy. And then the boy proceeds to take the baseball bat and bash his sisters over the head. What would any good mother do? You take the baseball bat away. If you don't know how to use the toys that I've given to you, you don't deserve to have the toys. That's an analogy. And what's it analogous to? God, says the Satan. You gave Reuben lots of toys. For example, his eyes. Blink, blink. Wow, those movies. Constant movies. In color. Amazing. You gave him hands. Touch, touch. You gave him feet. Walk, walk. Incredible. All these toys. And he proceeds to take the toys that you gave. He doesn't read the instructions. He, he abuses the toys. I think you should take all the toys away. And if God buys into this argument of the Satan, he might just say, well, you got a point there. Go ahead, take his life away. And then, Satan takes off that second t-shirt. And underneath, it says, Malachamavas, angel of death. And he comes down. And he takes the rips, the life source out of a person. That's who this angel... So that says, says the Bashem Tov. Tosvos. 
Tosfos is a shochet to the almakoi. This, the Tosfos, there's a few more words in Tosfos. I kind of left it up before. He says we're not talking about the case of shchita of slaughtering in the Mishnah. We've dealt with that technicality and rigidity in Jewish law elsewhere in the tractate. Rather, what are we discussing? Says Tosfos, a shochet to alma. It's the shochet of the world, the slaughter of the world. Who is the slaughter of the world? Says the Baal Shem Tov. It is none other than the angel of death who's the same as the Yetzirah. And now the Talmud asks, Shochet, this slaughterer that the Tosafist just told us who it was, the, the butcher of the world, why is he liable at the end of days? Why at the end of days will God destroy this Shochet? Says Rav. You want to know why? Mishum Tzoveya. Because he colors. Oh, he paints a beautiful picture, doesn't he? What does he do? He paints a sin and makes it appear like it's a mitzvah. Alt is a mitzvah. It was a mitzvah what I said. For the principle of the matter, I did what I did. And because he went above and beyond the call of duty, l'chaim, l'chaim, that's why God is going to destroy. We've just answered questions Two and one. The Tosafists, Shochet Da Alma. The Tosafists say this passage in the Talmud is like Zoharic. It's a whole different dimension, this Talmud passage. And, and that's why Rav said, Soveya, coloring. And then what did Shmuel say? Shmuel doesn't argue on Rav. Shmuel compliments Rav. Once Shmuel heard that Rav said, Soveya, that the Shochet, the Shochet, the butcher of the world, this angel of death, you know why, why, why does he deserve to be destroyed at the end? Because he colors and he paints pictures and, and he fools us. Says Shmuel, that's why Netilas Neshama, he says. Because he's Tzoveya, because he paints this picture and fools us, that's how he's notel, a person's Neshama, that's how he takes a person's soul. That's how he robs a person from his or her soul, so they both base, they complement each other. This is the approach of the Baal Shem Tov, which basically shares with us, wow, what a, what, a, what a lesson that we're learning. And that's how it ties right back to our portion. The first discussion of the parsha is that of vows. By vows, lo yachil devaro. Don't profane what we say. Mean what we say, say what we mean, carry it out. We pledge to do something to do it. And to be honest, with integrity. What's the level of integrity? We have to realize the second topic is about a war. Very often in the Torah, the wars that we wage represent another battle, a different battlefield. It's the battlefield, the battle against the Yetzirah. And these two topics that lay adjacent to each other in the portion, together come to teach us we're in a war. We're in a war when it comes to honesty. To be honest with whom? To be honest with ourselves. Because it could be, God forbid, a person could be living a lie their entire life at least to call a spade a spade at least to be moda al ha'emet to admit the truth we never admit to doing anything wrong if we are always perfect we never do anything wrong maybe we'll never come to do tshuva because nobody's perfect and we all have shortcomings and just to be man enough or person enough to kind of call just admit it's okay I have a, I have a problem I have a problem. It's the first step to recovery is to admit I have an issue. I've got a problem. 
Once a person admits, oh, okay, now we can discuss. Now we can move forward and take the necessary steps at trying to heal ourselves and, 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 uh, and grow from the experiences. This is a lesson, I think, that our portion is coming to teach us. And uh, maybe I'll just leave. There is a story I wanted to share, but the time is kind of late and I, I don't think I'll have the time for the story. You'll tell me after Mincha and Mayer. Maybe we won't do this, but I'll just jump to a practical application, okay, without the story, for a moment. It's a beautiful Kutzker story, but I'll just jump that story. But what can we do practically to walk away from this parsha and this lesson? I think it's like this. We have to ask ourselves sometimes very serious questions. We have to ask ourselves these questions. Now, first of all, to be honest, to be honest, <laughs> to be honest with ourselves, we can ask God for assistance. We can pray to Hashem for assistance. We can. It's very good. Very. It's, it's imperative to have a Rebbe or a Rebbitzin, a, a mentor, a spiritual mentor. We go. We go to professionals for everything else. We have trouble with our eye. We go to an eye professional. We have with the heart, an, a heart professional. If we have trouble with our souls, we need to seek out a professional when it comes to the soul as well. It's eternity we're talking about. So it's imperative to have somebody to speak to, to ask advice from. What do you think? How could I help myself? Whatever the case may be. But besides that, we can also ask ourselves some pretty strong questions. For, for example, before I go and do something, before I say something, before I look at something, here comes some pretty tough questions. Ask us, stop and ask ourselves a question. If God could see me, right, and God does, if God could see me right now, is He going to be proud of me or disappointed in me? If my parents could see me right now, if my best friends could see me, if my children could see me, if my grandchildren could see me right now, would I be proud? Or would I be ashamed? These are the types of questions that could, with this type of Yetzahara, who kind of the JNR, justification, rationalization, these types of questions can clear most of the smoke, most of the cloud, right? the smoke screen that blinds us. Let's be honest. Do I really think, would, would I want my child to do right now what I'm doing? Would I be proud of my own child? Would I reprimand my own child for looking, for saying, for listening, for doing, or for not doing, or for not saying? Would I be proud or disappointed? Then we have to hold ourselves to that same level and start asking. And if we don't know the... So for the most part, it should answer the question. It should. And if it doesn't, then we go to the mentor. We go to a professional. And we ask a shayla. We ask a question. Rebbe, what do you think? What do you think? I have this situation. I'd like to join. These are my reasons. So somebody who's out of the box, who's not really going, might be able to see into the maze and guide us in the proper way. This is the best that we can do until the end of days when God destroys that Yitzhahara. We should all merit to be able to live up to this expectation and hopefully walk away from Parsha and pizza with a good taste in our mouths of honesty and integrity. To be honest with ourselves. To be our own judges. Forget other people. Look at ourselves. Introspection. See ourselves. And hopefully then, please God, 
when we mean business and we really want to grow the right way, then hopefully God will look down and say, well, you know something? That's what I was looking for anyway, to be truthful. MS, you want MS in the world with the truth? God will then reveal the ultimate truth into this world. And hopefully that light of truth will blind the wicked and will hopefully heal the righteous and will have a world hopefully with no more war, no more illness, no more poverty, just hopefully our eyes should be able to see God's return to Zion. But the next word is crucial as well, the Rachamim. It should be with mercy. It should be pleasant. It should be soft. It shouldn't have to be with pains and struggles along the way. We should all merit to see this soon, speedily in our days. Amen. And good job. Good job. Good job. Good job. Good job. Good job.